Welcome to another episode of Surgeons Lives. I'm your host, John Monson. Today, we're delighted to welcome Dr. Nick Kolyabas to talk to us on the podcast. Nick is a, an orthopedic surgeon in San Francisco. Originally, he comes from what was Rhodesia and is now Zimbabwe. And so has a life story that's going to be of interest um, to hear from him in terms of his experiences of moving from uh, the Southern Hemisphere to the Northern Hemisphere. In addition, I've known Nick for a number of years as a fellow racer of vintage cars. Uh, he has quite an envious collection, um, which he drives with immense skill and verve. And um, that's certainly going to be an interesting conversation. So without further ado, um, let's uh, welcome Dr. Nick Kolyabas um, for our podcast today. This is Surgeons Lives, and I'm John Monson. Good morning, Nick. And how are you doing? I'm good, and uh, thanks for joining me today. You're, uh, you've got the appropriate San Francisco uh, background. Yeah, you know, that's my backyard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so well, it's great to see you. Um, after all these COVID years, etc., and uh, uh, I appreciate you joining what is um, a strange um, but hopefully enjoyable little podcast, um, which we'll be releasing later this year called Surgeons' Lives. Um, and uh, you know, there are plenty of podcasts where we talk to where people talk to surgeons about their career and their professional ambitions, etc. And we'll obviously cover a little bit of that this morning, but. Um, as much as anything, I'm interested in talking to surgeons about, um, you know, what else makes them take the other Nick, um, and which, you know, covers all sorts of things, um, uh, as you'll see when the podcast comes out. So what, uh, for the, for the viewers, <laughs> hopefully there will be some viewers. <laughs> the vast audience, yes. Yes, for the, uh, for the masked millions, um. Uh, I usually ask um, uh, our guests to start uh, with just a brief um, story that starts with the words I was born in. All right, well, let's let's get started then. Um, I was born in uh, in what was then Salisbury, Rhodesia, uh, now Harare, Zimbabwe, and um, essentially uh, grew up there. Both my parents were born there as well. Um, my grandparents were originally born in, in Greece and, and uh, both sets of grandparents immigrated to Africa in the early 1900s, um, started uh, businesses, farming, carpentry, um, and um, had children who met uh, in the tight-knit Greek community um, that was uh, present there. Um, and and that's where I was born. That's how I I, I came to be uh, originally uh, from Africa. Originally, um, a, a, a decent sized Greek community or very small? Uh, very small. I I don't know the actual number. Probably less than twenty thousand. Oh, you know, um, pretty small, but very tight, very close knit. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, very much kept to themselves, as of course the Italian community did, as the Jewish community did. Um, very, you know, <laughs> intermarried, um, you know, uh, my, one of my 
cousins was the first rebel and married a non-greek girl you know and oh my goodness big scare big scandal at the time um but uh yeah so yeah i think a fairly a fairly standard um immigrant story as far as the first generation came and built the yeah. businesses and whatever for the community and parents were always very active in the in the greek community the church was very a very strong presence, et cetera, et cetera. And then the subsequent generations get diluted out, right? And, and sure, yeah. And and that sort of is uh, typical. But we're still, I think, I think, I think we're very close knit. We we get together in Greece uh, frequently, and um, um, you know, the cousins are all now spread around the world, literally, uh, pretty much every continent except Antarctica, I think, and. Um, <laughs> And we still are close, which is very, uh, yeah. uh, you know, very satisfying. So you were, uh, I mean, without being, uh, I don't know what the word is, but you were brought up in, in a degree of privilege. Um, uh, yeah, well, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's sort of a mixed bag. It, as far as we were concerned, we were, you know, we were certainly not as well off as other people. Mm. Um, but it was a pretty, if I look back at it, it was a pretty homogenous class. If you look, you know, it was very racially divided, of course, yeah. but within, mm -hmm. within our, um, within our setting, I mean, it was a largely middle-class upbringing. My dad did pretty well, you know, later on in life, we, you know, we grew up in an apartment, the kid, all kids with, with, with us. And then later on in life, we were able to actually have you know, a house with a pool and a tennis a tennis court, really, you know, fairly fairly high living, I would say. Yeah. Um, but that all went away, of course, when we left. And um, when did the, the, as you say, your family, I mean, they're scattered to the four corners, but, you know, when did they start to leave? Was it um, all because of the political background or was it just the natural wanderlust of, of younger generations? Oh, I think I think uh, much more the former than the latter. Um, and there was some of some of the wonderlust, but um, really, I think, and it wasn't all at one time. Mm -hmm. You know, my parents were sort of early adopters, if you have it, and left relatively early, uh, yeah. even before you know, bef you know, just before independence, sort of um, uh, figuring that that was going to be an eventual move anyway. May as, may as well do it while the kids were younger um and um and then i have cousins and uncles and yeah. aunts who stayed another 20 years but all eventually yeah. left i've got a few left there so what what age were you when you left 18 okay so that was quite a uh, you know 18 is a pretty formative you know uh fork in the road for any individual Oh, I don't know who I was at eighteen. I I was I was <laughs> I was a complete child. I was a you know, and I it it took me many many years after that to mature. I think uh, I think at eighteen I um uh you know as it is in in the in the in the in the Commonwealth in in England and the Commonwealth countries, you are if you're going to go into medicine, you make that decision early, right? It's yeah, not, yeah. Uh, it's not four years of a liberal arts degree. And then yeah. I'm going to go to medical school. You go straight from high school where you're, you know, yeah. pretty wet behind the ears. And, and, and fortunately for me, it was, you know, absolutely the correct choice. Um, but we had, we had a, a good number of good number of students in my class who I think 
were there because their parents wanted them to be there or they thought it was a good idea at the time. And, you know, that wasn't, that wasn't always the best thing. And where and, was and I, it? What's that? Where was that? So, so I initially came to the U.S. My, my parents had moved to the U.S. by the time I was 18. And um, I came here and I started the process. Um, and I was here for not quite a year, um, but enough time to figure out that it was incredibly expensive um, and, uh, and no guarantee that you would get into medical school anyway after four years. Um, and, you know, my parents couldn't afford it and I'd have to get on loans, et cetera, et cetera. And I had, I, so I put in an application in South Africa um, where they had a quota for Zimbabwean students. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, they, they was, out of 200, they would take six. And was this in uh, was this in Cape Town? This was in Johannesburg. This is what, at, yeah. at what's called Vits. Okay. Uh, so the two yeah. English speaking medical schools were Cape Town and Vits. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I had family in Johannesburg, so that was the that was the sort of uh, obvious prim yeah. primary obvious goal. And so mm -hmm. uh, um, I I put in an application in Johannesburg and I got accepted and. You know, I mean, uh, like so many decisions in life, you you sort of throw out a few options and throw throw out a few hooks, and occasionally a fish comes along, and that turned out to be an excellent choice. Yeah, right? yeah. It, it got me away from my family for a while and got me to be independent, which I needed. Yeah. Um, um and 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 in no you know in no way a slight to my parents in any way, sure. but I just mm -hmm. I just needed to be away and independent to, to, to kind of become to become my own person yeah um and that was six years and i i, I worked a part-time job at a restaurant the whole time that paid for medical school right so i came out i came out of medical school with no no debt um and yeah. um, that's a big issue for um for the u.s graduating doctors not just graduating from medical school, but you know, they, I see so many young docs, young surgeons um, who finish their residency burdened with huge debts that can only, um, in my opinion, influence their career choices. When, you know, for example, if they, if they might wish to pursue, a, a, you know, a, a more academic um, strategy for their passion and interest, um, I see them sometimes having to pursue more lucrative options simply because it's a practicality. Um, and, and I'm not sure that's a good thing. Yeah. I mean, no question about it. We, you know, our residents all have significant loans yeah. and, you know, we graduate three fellows out of the sports program every year. And, you know, I, I'm, I, I advise them on all their, um, on their, all their career choices and things. Cause just, just because I've been at it for so long. Yeah. yeah. Um, and um, you know, it's it's it, it makes it makes it's an important part of the decision making process. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And I see I see that all the time, and I agree. And I think you know I didn't want to burden burden anyone. I didn't. I wanted to do it myself, and that worked out. But of course, then that does come with its its own problem, which is how do you get back into the system, right? Well, that was going to be my next question. So, was it always the plan to return to the United States and? And did you so, did you have it worked out? I didn't have it worked out. I did, you know, like like most things, um, there was just a, 
degree of opportunity and some luck that uh, threw into it. That was certainly one of the choices, one of the options. But, um, you know, at that time in particular, um, it's no longer the case, I believe. But at that time, my degree was uh, instantly accepted in the UK. So I got, yes. I got on, I got on the, the, the register and it was a, it was a reciprocal agreement. So I could have gone to the UK. Yeah. Um, uh, we have family in Greece. I could have gone to Greece. Um, but I had started the process of looking into what, you know, how to do it in the U S and of course my parents were there and, um, I figured that would be sort of, I'd give that a go and see how easy or hard it would be. And I ended up doing some research, interestingly, in, uh, in the only lab that I could find a spot, which was vascular surgery, um, uh, which, you know, to this day, I find interesting. And maybe that's just because of the, because of the background I had. And once I was there, you know, the usual thing happened. You start to meet people, know people, people get to know you. Um, I met the residency directors. I met, you know, the attendings that were all part of the residency. This was all at UCSF. Um, and that um, helped my application significantly, obviously. And, um, you know, in, a, in, again, another twist of fate, when I was at medical school, um, our orthopedic rotations were not really that good. Mm -hmm. You know, the... the what we were exposed to, and I think the attendings we had weren't that inspiring. And I was not that interested in orthopedics in medical school. And when I had done the vascular surgery, I had uh, the vascular surgery year, I had um, contact with a lot of general surgeons because, uh, of course, they were all general surgery trained. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, um, and I thought, well, general surgery is what I want to do. So I actually applied for general surgery. Right. And I, I got into a categorical position in general surgery. And two months in, um, I hated it. <laughs> and where, uh, where were you geographically at this stage? This is all in San Francisco. Oh, oh you, so well, you... Yeah, because my, 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 my dad had one very distant... Uh, so uh, his business partner's sister's husband <laughs> lived in Menlo Park, California. Okay. The only person my dad knew in the entire 300 million people in the United States was in Menlo Park, California, which is, you know, on the peninsula here. And so that's, that's essentially how we ended up in San Francisco. If that person had been in Boise, Idaho, that's where we probably would all yeah. have been. Yeah. But that, you know, so when he came out here, that's who he met. That's who he sort of had the connection with. And that's how we end, you know, there's the only people we knew. So that's why we ended up in this area. So I focused everything in San Francisco. In fact, my, my rank list had one, had one place on it. Um, and um, what, uh, what year are we talking now? So, you know, back in the dark ages, 1990, we're talking about, I right. did my research year in 89 and 1990. I, um, uh, I got I got the intern I got the the first year of uh, residency. Yeah, it's what um it's what a faculty colleague of mine refers to as a previous century. Absolutely, I sometimes call it the Jurassic period, or you know, some yeah. <laughs> it's so far back it's hard to. Uh, so did you do all of your um, did you do all of your orthopedic training in San Francisco, or did you? Yeah, so 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 then of course I said told everyone, and then oh sorry, after the two months of general surgery, I went into an orthopedic rotation, 
that I couldn't have loved more. It was all hammers and nails and plates and screws. And I was yeah. like, oh my God, this is, you know, what am I doing? Yeah. And so I told everyone and some were upset and some were like, okay, this is, this is obviously what you want to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I was able to, to switch and then right. do all, all my residency training at UCSF. Right. And um, and uh, did you, you you I assume or you, did you do a fellowship and um, or so not? I look at I look at the fellows now they're doing one or two fellowships yeah yeah uh, but when I graduated which was ninety uh, six or ninety seven only three of the six of us did fellowships it wasn't a requirement yeah um, sure. and and it wasn't considered. Um, it wasn't considered necessary for a job. It wasn't, uh, you know, an absolute, no, you can't get a job if you don't have a, a fellowship, which it is now. Yeah. Um, and so I didn't do a fellowship, but I, I knew, I knew I wanted to do sports. Yeah. And, I yeah. Knew, and yeah. so, so, um, and I had, uh, I had uh, um, lined up some time off um, because actually one of the things I wanted to do again, one, one of those sort of transition points was, go back to England, go back to Greece, actually right. went back to yeah. Africa. And I had lined up a bunch of people to go um, work with and see their practices. And, you know, I was essentially just, just a, um, a graduate that was looking for where I was going to end up. And after all that, that, that process took uh, eight months, nine months. Um, I just came back. I said, you know, the best choice, training here and everything the best choice for me ultimately is going to yeah, be stay yeah. here, you know so you at uh, least but, um somewhere in your mind was the um was the uh, common uh, inkling or whisper in the ear of any immigrant you know maybe one day i'll go back um, but um to, to this very day john to yeah, this very day yeah. to uh you know yeah <laughs> i was talking about it with someone yesterday yeah um, yeah you know, so, as time goes by, there's there's many lives you want to have led, you know. Yeah, for sure. So yeah. here you are now. You know, fast forward um, several decades, highly successful um, guy. Um, you know everything that goes with that, and and um, you know, you and I both are aware of the fact that you have um, uh, an expensive and. Um, foolish habit um, that you have rationalized over many years, um, like um, many of us have. But what was the first car that you remember that is in your memory? Oh, you mean going back to childhood? Yeah, yeah. Um, I I mean, uh, the first impressive car, um, you know, yeah. I, mean, always, I was always uh, enamored by my parents' cars, something they never shared, incidentally. My parents had a actively discouraged me from cars and car-related yeah. sure. mania, which I, I think probably drove me further into it, of course. But, yeah. um, um, you know, my, my parents' car, the first car I drove was a Peugeot 304. Uh -huh. um, and... Uh, I, my, my dad had a Holden. Now this, yeah. this was, this was the 70s Rhodesia where any car that you could get in the country somehow, you know, was considered anything that worked was good. So there were no luxury vehicles. Although I do remember one of our wealthy, um, 
Greek friends. They weren't related, but they were they were you know, close part of the community. Bought a Lamborghini Miura into the country. Somewhere. Oh my goodness! Wow. And um, mm -hmm. you know, I remember saying, "Well, okay, that's that's a life goal, right? You know, that's the, <laughs> the at 16 years old or whatever. That was, it, you know, totally blew my mind. I can't and, imagine um, in the 70s and 80s um, the roads in Rhodesia as it was then would have been ideally suited for a Miura. To, to be honest, I think they actually were better than many other places. The, really? infrastructure, the infrastructure there was 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 excellent, um, and mm. um, I think you know there was not a lot of traffic. Yeah, <laughs> um, and um, and the reality is that you know if you if you if you had the means, you probably could enjoy that car pretty well. Yeah, yeah. At, the, at, so... that, at that time and place, yeah. So uh, when did you first start dabbling? Was it, um, uh, to coin the um, standard model quoted by Nick Mason many years ago, um, you know, when did you first start collecting cars? And, you know, his answer was, well, when I first started making money. Um, yeah. It, it does go together. I mean, it's, sure. it's 100, it's 100 percent correlation. Mm -hmm. I mean, thinking about it. Yes, that was, you know, many years prior. Um, but um the uh um the reality is that it's a you know it's an expensive and addictive hobby and um it's just it's never been a poor man's sport um but were you uh, you know when you were you know a resident and uh, etc i mean you were you, were you driving around in stupid cars that people like you and i do or were they like really boring <laughs> things you know um it was really what i could afford yeah Mm -hmm. And um, at a one point in time, I had saved enough money to spend six thousand dollars, which was you know quite a lot of money on an mm -hmm. Alpha uh, Alpha GTV, a oh, two yeah. and a half, a, uh, Alpha Six, the two six and a half cylinder, yeah, yeah. And you know that was a car I had lusted after when I was yeah. at, uh, in in university in South Africa. They built a three liter version, a, a yeah. bespoke three liter version, and I thought that was the be all and end all of cars and um it was as unreliable and <laughs> awful as as everybody everybody warned me it would be um but i stuck to it for a while uh it developed a, a massive hole in the bat flow which i used plaster of paris to fix that lasted <laughs> that lasted you know about six weeks at a time and the plaster of paris would just fall off and then i just wrap it again because that was easy and free for me um they did, and, they did, uh, um, they did sound nice those cars the they sounded their, their motors were very good yeah, um yeah. but you know every every week something else would go wrong the throttle yeah. cable would break or you know bits would fall off and everything yeah. So, um, so that was my, that was my only foray. The rest of the time it was reliable, you know, VW golfs and things like that. Cheap, easy, reliable. So During you, yeah. I, I know you have, um, I know you've got, you know, a, a few interesting road cars, but you know, most of what you, uh, or what I know you for is for, you know, so-called vintage racing, although there was a, um uh, you have briefly dabbled in outrageous modern stuff but um but um most of what i know you for as i say is for the vintage stuff so um you know what started that and what was the first one 
Yeah, so during residency, I had met a, 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 met a guy um, that was very involved in vintage racing. And he invited me to these races and I would go as a, as a spectator and watch and, um, you know, really sort of built up my appetite. But it was not till essentially I got my first paycheck and, and I knew what I wanted and I knew that I, this is what I wanted to spend my money on. It was not a, it was not a, you know, sort of um, fly by night idea. Um, yeah. I, I clearly knew exactly what I wanted. Uh, but the first check, paycheck actually wasn't enough to buy the car, which was the Formula Ford. Yeah. And um, uh, I had to call up a friend of mine, uh, a neurosurgeon friend of mine who was into racing, Dr. Brian Andrews, and said to him, hey, I've just got paid <laughs> and I've got enough money you know, to buy a half share in this car. How about you come in and buy this with me? So, you know, Brian being wonderful and generous, didn't particularly think it was a good idea, but uh, said, what the hell, we'll, we'll do this. And once we both started driving the car, he liked it so much, he, he said, hey, look, I'm just going to buy my own one and, you know, buy me out of this one ultimately. Yeah. So that was a Formula Ford, a Merlin Mark 11A, sort of a classic yeah. Formula Ford. Um, and in this country, actually, Merlins are not that popular or common for the Formula Ford group. There, yeah. you know, Titan is definitely the the mark yeah. that's used more often, but of course in the UK, Merlin is exceptional. Well, Merlin, uh, yeah, and then you know the Mark Eleven A, of course, is a is a you know for a front runner uh, for much of the sort of uh, uh, historic stuff, and uh, of course in the US for a period, you know, the dominant car was the Crossley. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, they were, and they were dominant worldwide for a few years, but particularly that was their market, you know. Yeah, that was that was later on, particularly in the club, yeah. in the club Ford group. But in the historic Fords, um, the, the Merlin was was very popular. And, you know, I mean, remains that way in the UK. There's just not as many of them out here. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that was the, you know, that was sort of where I cut my teeth in, in vintage racing. So, you know, and that actually set the tone for, for a lot of different things um, and sort of molded my, my driving um, ambitions towards, very much towards single seaters. Yeah. You know, I think because I learned how to drive in one, I always go back to, Whatever else I drive, I'm always a little bit, mm, it's not just not quite as good as a single seater. Yeah. And so that's why if you look at what I do now, um, it's really very single seater. Yeah. Uh, oriented. Um, Did you? Not that, not that I haven't enjoyed all those other things. Of sure, sure. When you when you got the Formula Ford, was it um, a toe in the water to uh, you know and that would be it, or did you always have a master plan to, for example, and you know one of the pinnacles would be you know sitting on the grid of the Monaco Historique in a Formula One car. I mean, was that always the plan? And yeah, I mean, when, when money allowed, or or did it just? It was it was it was certainly the desire. It was yeah. Certainly desire i don't i don't know i'm not sure i've ever put it formally in a plan and and you know when i first started going to the vintage races going to the monterey historics they had the f1 field there mm -hmm. and you know i clear i mean even though they had the the ferrari uh you know gtos running around in their group i clearly gravitated to the to the f1 yeah. groups because that's that's what i was 
obsessed with when I was a teenager was reading, you know, all the car magazines about the F1 races and all yeah. the cars and what the latest, you know, you know, what the latest and greatest was. And, and, and it was in the seventies, which is again, the sort of what I feel is the golden era of F F1. And, and, you know, and, and that's, that's arguable. And I understand that that's a, a moving target, but for me, those, those mid seventies cars, mid seventies F1 cars were always awesome. And actually for the longest time, I never believed I'd actually even be able to afford that. You know, sure. anyway. yeah. um, so it wasn't the plan, but it was certainly the desire. Did you, um, you know, uh, did you do the honorable thing and, you know, were you, uh, was Jody Schechter your hero or, you know, <laughs> or, or not? I think Mickey Lauda was far more of my hero than anyone okay. else. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that all of those characters, they were only they were only ever in books or, you know, magazines. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, most of my information came from magazines. We never had television coverage even. I never yeah. watched those yeah. races um, on, on, on the screen. It was all, you know, intense pouring through the, the minutia of what the magazines were saying and looking at the grid charts and all that stuff. And, and, and I loved it. And we used to go over to our friend's house and we'd, you know, talk for hours and hours about how this, that, and whatever. Um, and, and that's, that's what I, that's was sort of the basis for what then later developed into, into, you know, what I was doing next. Yeah. It was, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, I was brought up in Ireland, which is, you know, just a, a stone's flick from England, you know, the center of uh, Formula One, but strangely and bizarrely, um, you know, in 70s Ireland, there was no money and, you know, it was a pretty underdeveloped country. And so it was exactly the same. I, you know, I lived um, vicariously through the weekly arrival of motoring news, yep. you know, which was, which I used to leave school and walk down um, on Thursday to buy, you know, motoring news and uh, eagerly, eagerly awaiting the next eagerly, article. And, yeah. You know, and the only racetrack in Ireland was Mandela Park. And I used to go there, but, you know, they were all Irish people that didn't, uh, that, you know, the guys that would occasionally go to England and race were highly exotic. And, um, you know, the first time I saw any stars um, was, um, in 1970, when the Formula 5000 guys turned mm -hmm. up. Mm -hmm. And I remember meeting Mike Halewood and Brian Redman and John Surtees. Yeah. Um, and my dad was a former bike racer, um, high level bike racer. So he knew John Surtees. So I ended up polishing Mike Halewood's car as a sort of a gopher. Um, and as I, in recent years, got to know Brian Redman. Um, um, I, I, I remember telling him that the first time I had ever seen him in the, um, was actually standing at the urinals in the field in uh, <laughs> in, in Mandela Park, and I suddenly realized I was standing beside this legend. You know, <laughs> taking a piss. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. You know, I uh, I I I think. Um, Probably my my first you know real well definitely my first real um, and and it was you know I was eighteen years old but uh, the Long Beach Grand Prix seventy eight or seventy um, would it, would have been seventy eight or seventy nine I was I was able to go to I, I happened to come to the U S to visit my yeah. parents 
same time yeah. and, and made, you know, what, you know, for me probably at the time was a pilgrimage yeah. uh, to, to, to see that. And, you know, saw, saw all those drivers in the pits and everything. Of course, access was a little bit easier in those days, but um, you know, and, 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 you know, just, just, just certainly confirmed everything that I thought, which was, this is, this is the best thing in the world. There's no, there can't, there can't be anything better than this, you know? Um, so, so you have a hobby and we'll talk about it more in a, in a moment. Um, hobby possibly doesn't do it justice, but you have your, your other life and, you know, others collect guitars and, you know, was talking to a surgeon uh, recently who's a wood turner, um, mm -hmm. etc. Um, it doesn't really matter, does it? Do Do you think um, um, you know, what's your view about having how that other aspect of your life impacts upon, helps, supports, distracts from your professional life? Is it a good? You know, when you and I were growing up. Um, uh, you know, surgeons were meant to be surgeons and didn't talk about such frippery, you know, um, Absolutely. Yeah. You know yeah. which I don't think is a good thing. I mean, uh, you know, I think burnout levels tell us that we should have some other aspect, but what's been your experience in terms of how it has influenced your life? Well, you know, I think it's a, it's, it's an, it, it has been an, and remains an integral part of my life, right? I, I, I it's, just hard to imagine it not being there anymore um you know it has to end at some point in time we understand that but um you know it, it probably will will just just continue to morph over time but um you know has it does any of the skill and i'm asked this question quite often and, and actually i even see some surgeons who, who drive cars try and make that correlation between you know the the pressures the skill the precision the requirements of what you do when you drive and what you do when you when you do surgery and and i personally and and i've <laughs> i've i've gotten some pushback on this but i personally don't see a lot of crossover yeah, yeah i don't I, personally I, I agree <laughs> yeah I, I mean people make that comparison and i say you know maybe in if you're in the trauma bay and 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 you've you know you're <laughs> you're you're literally you know seconds make a difference um maybe i can see some correlation there because in driving yes you know decisions instantaneous decisions have consequences often you know either good or bad um uh, instantaneously almost sure so and I, you know i just don't see the crossover with surgery but as far as making me um a more pleasant person to be around um i think that's the case i think that um my accountant thinks i'm an idiot mm. but you know i um and i think my wife you know <laughs> looks looks at the bills and uh, and probably thinks that too but doesn't tell me uh, mm. or at least not 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 as not as blatantly as the accountant does um, but, you know, it's a passion and, and passion. And that's the way I don't describe it as a hobby. I describe it as a passion because yeah. it's something you do despite the consequences, um, you know, despite the fact that it's not it's not good for your budget. It's not, you know, it's, it's not good for it's not good for many things, but it makes me so happy. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> you know, I think that I think that does make me a more complete person and and 
it's interesting you know it's it's now of course like you i'm sure you're known for this right and in your in your you know in your career and so all of your doctor friends and i'm sure many of your patients talk about cars with you and it's yeah. a it's a facet of your life that yeah. you know makes you better rounded and helps you connect with people better as well and i find that all the time yeah what is your um I mean, you say you give career advice to your fellows, et cetera, and other residents, et cetera. I mean, uh, you know, do you do you advise them to ensure that they have uh, a good balance, or in the or or do you say no, no, never mind any of that until you're well established? What's your your take? Well, well, some of my friends used to tell me I should write a book about balance theory, which I used to talk about a lot. Um, and, you know, I think it just comes in many guises, but the, it, it is what everyone's talking about now, which is, you know, don't burn out. Um, yeah. And I, I think, okay, so this would be sort of, you know, part of my view um, on why life is a bit more difficult these days um, for for our graduates, for our, you know, for our residents coming out and, and our young, our young surgeons and, you know, in careers. Um, it's just harder to make the kind of money we used to. Yeah. Whatever you, you know, however you look at it, where, you know, whatever job it is, private practice or academics, whatever, just harder to make that kind of money. And I think we let a lot of things slide because we were able to, you know, justify it at the end of the day and say, hey, you know what, I'm exhausted as hell, but I can buy that new race car now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it's not, it's probably not a healthy way to look at things, no. but mm -hmm. I think that is, that is what was going on. And that's why I never felt burnt out. Although, you know, I, I talked to, I talked to my, you know, I'll have coffee with one of my old office managers and she said, well, you know, you were held for leather, you were six days a week and everything like that. And then you'd fly off to England and, you know, spend five days at a race meeting and come right back and then you'd get off the plane and go straight to the, you know, see patients and all this kind of stuff. And it was like, it was just hectic. Yeah, um, yeah. And, you know, there were times when I felt like, Oh, what would it be like just to take literally take a week off and stay home and do nothing. And, yeah. um, you know, I mean, I, they were just, it just never, it never materialized and it never, never was a concept. Now everything's different now. I'm in a, in what I call my post workaholic stage yeah. of my career. Um, I am, and, and it's a balance, right? I don't see, uh, I mean, and I'm not um, being nostalgic for, um, for, if you like, my era or a previous eras. Um, because they all had their own challenges, but I don't see the issues that you're referring to improving for the graduates um, these days in any specialty. Um, I mean, obviously, different specialties in surgery reimburse differently. You know, if you yeah. you want to be a, a zillionaire, you don't become a colorectal surgeon. You know, uh, um, et cetera, et cetera. But um, you know, compared to people working packing fish, it's very well you know, re uh, compensated, but it's, as you say, the, the professional income side of things is, you know, there's more required to achieve the same, um, you know, every employing organization wants a bigger pound of flesh, if that isn't a, an oxymoron, you know, um, but uh, they want more for less. 
No, no question. Um, you know, and I, I think it, it, it's, it's driven the way that the new graduates are looking for jobs, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, I think that there, I mean, the statistics clearly show it that, you know, the, the, the uh, desire for routine employment versus the, yeah. the, the risks of private practice have you know largely taken over where where residents and fellows want to end up that you know they yeah. want a secure job that pays us a certain amount has a certain amount of leave no risk involved no you know no financial or other risk involved um and and you can see why right i mean that that makes sense and and that you know that's driving the when you know when they're reviewing the contracts now the amount of time off is an important important piece to it you know yeah. paternity leave is an important piece to it and it should be uh because it's no longer you know i'm going to go into private practice and i'll put those things aside so that i can build my practice yeah. it's like well i'm i'm not going to do that so i'm just i'm going to work and i'm going to be really good and i'm going to be de dedicated and they all are but you know it needs to be there needs to be parameters to what i do and, and i see that a lot now yeah and I, you know, I think to some extent they need to intentionally articulate those issues um, in their contract discussions for the simple reason that the employing authority, whatever you want to call them, the employer, um, you know, is, let me put it this way crudely, can't really be trusted to do the right thing without it being articulated. In terms of paternity leave or time off or, you know, academic time or whatever it is. I mean, you know, when I took my first job, it was based on a handshake with my boss and we understood what we expected of each other. But, yeah. you know, that's long gone now. That, 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 yeah, that's, that's, that's truly in a, another century. Yeah. Um, the the rea the the reality is you know the now these you know these are multi page multi page contracts with every detail spelt out yeah um, which are reviewed by lawyers on both yeah. sides and and the employers are you know more and more of course corporate entities for whom yeah. Yeah. you're just an employee you're you know and and so you 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 know you you better have your employee rights sorted out before you go in there and yeah. and make sure yeah. you get what you need. Um, so it's a it's a it's a changing landscape, and I think it's you know it's clearly heading towards that model more and more. I think there's there's a place for private practice, but I've just seen over the last twenty years less and less percentage of people yeah. coming in, not zero, but still sure. less and less. And um, you know all of all of the forces that are coming about now. We I don't know about your field, but you know we've got now the the big hundred and fifty surgeon groups coming together. You know, yeah, these well, mega mega groups that are trying to maintain some level of autonomy for the surgeons so that they're not part of a corporate entity, although they now become part of a, <laughs> something that's run somewhat like a corporate entity too. But at yeah, least no, that's, that's for sure. And yeah. you know, our um, our uh, organization actually just um, signed up a deal for the in Florida. Um, uh, we were multi-state, but our Florida orthopedics is now provided by the Rothman Institute. Yeah, yeah, which is they, you know uh, hundreds of of surgeons at this yeah, point. Yeah, exactly. So, and so, then Florida, Florida seems to be a very uh, you know everyone's trying to get in there. Yeah, 
Um, it's a, it's very uh, it's different to California, that's for sure. Yeah. Let me put it that way. Yeah. So, um, in your time, uh, because you do span a number of years from a previous century in orthopedics, for example, um, what's the biggest change for the good that you've seen, and and um, perhaps we've already discussed what the biggest change for um, the worst changes, you know, for bad. But what's the biggest change for good that you've seen in your career? Um, I think, and maybe this is somewhat, you know, more personal for me, but I think the shift for us from hospital-based practice to outpatient practices, 98% of what I do is yeah. at an outpatient center, yeah. which is just inherently run better, more efficient, safer, in fact, I think, for the patients than, you yeah. know, the, the, yeah. the hospital. And, and you know, we used, I was, when I trained to do a total joint, the patient was admitted the night before or maybe two sure. nights before. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then stayed for a week, you know. Yeah, yeah. They did, the surgery, they did their surgery on Monday and they went home on Sunday. Yeah. Um, and and now, you know, it's, it's, it's almost... I mean, put it this way, 30% or so, I think, got done outpatient and some yeah. places more than that. And all of my sports stuff, all of the arthros arthroscopy, unless it's a unusual situation, all gets done at the outpatient yeah. center. And for the worst... It makes everybody's life's better. Yeah. yeah. So what's the worst thing in your career that you've seen? Or is there one? Um, I think I think the the, you know... And, and it's all relative, like you said. I mean, you know, our salaries compared to salaries in other countries are still amazingly high. Yeah. But, you know, I think um, the, the, just the, the degradation of our earning capacity has, has made a difference. Mm. Uh, and, and to be honest, I think um, the, that, that has negatively impacted us to some degree, but it's also eliminated some of the, the, you know, the bad apples, yeah, um, yeah, which, yeah, which, you know, which exist in everybody's industry and including ours, you know, yeah, and so, sure. so, we, <laughs> but I still get the Becker's daily report of such and such a surgeon, you know, defrauding Medicare because, because yeah. people will find a way, you know, yeah. and, and, you know, the, and it's like, it's always amazing. And, and, and sometimes it's amazing to me, they do it for such, such a little amount of money. They throw away their entire careers it's interesting. Work. Yeah. You know, the 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 defrauders now have changed um, uh, in who they are simply because they're they're now the experts in electronic medical records. Those those yeah. ones are. Um, yeah, yeah. I know. Um, needless to say, know nothing whatsoever about orthopedics, but I I can tell you what I think has been the biggest change for the batter, and that is that when I was brought up. If you ruptured your ACL as a soccer player, your career was finished. That day, done, no question. Now yeah. it's a sort of a semi-routine thing now, you know. And yeah, look, I think we've made um, a lot of those sort of advances. Yeah. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, part of what I love is the evolving nature of it. Mm. You know, what, what we did, what I was trained to do um, yeah, you know, a total hip still a total hip, and a total knee still a total knee. And and yeah, you know, I, I I'll go into the OR and watch some of my, my friends do those. 
and, and, and look at it and say, okay, you do it in a bit more of a sophisticated manner, but it's still the same surgery. Yeah. Uh, uh, but many of our arthroscopic techniques, I was around, I was one of the first people in practice doing shoulder arthroscopy. Everyone mm. was doing it open. Um, when I came in practice, and that's actually how I built my practice as being being sort of the one of the one of the few people who did shoulder arthroscopy, and that you know all of those techniques continue to evolve, yeah. Yeah. and I think we are, you know, and then, and then there's things you know in my field like root repairs, which uh, meniscus root tears, you know we. As they, as the the saying goes, you know, we, we didn't see them, but they saw us. Um, you know, we would we would recognize there was a tear in the meniscus, but didn't know exactly what it was. And then, you know, over the last ten years, that's now become a routine standard surgery that is actually making a significant yeah, difference yeah. in preventing arthritis. So, you know, I mean, these are the these are the fun and exciting things that I like about the field, and and being being sort of. And watching that and maybe being a part of it along the way is 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 really still very satisfying and still something that makes me want to go to work every day. Some orthopedic still involves the unmistakable sound of a hammer hitting a chisel, you know. <laughs> well, I you know, I joke that because I do so much arthroscopy that I, I you know, if I'm if I'm if I'm in a clavicle fracture case and I get to use the drill and the screws. All my residents are like, oh, you're, you're so excited today. What's going on? It's like, well, I get to do actual hands-on surgery. You know? So <laughs> um, the video screen, yeah. So currently, um, the collection is how many cars? Um, are we talking about mo moving vehicles? Are we talking about cars in boxes? <laughs> are we talking about um, cars hanging we're, we're from talking... the rafters? We're talking on the basis that there's nobody with statutory authority listening. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, my wife's my wife's far away from here right yeah. now. But uh, yeah, I think there's there there's a dozen odd cars lying around here and there. Okay. Um, there's there's a couple still in Europe. Um, I did. Uh, I still have a lot of seller's remorse, but I sold the Shadow F1 car that that lived in Europe and was um, was um lovingly enjoyed while i you know while while i was uh while i was running that car but they did make me an offer i couldn't refuse so um, every time i um every time i saw that car up close i used to marvel at the rivet work um, that was i mean it was just done by an artist you know beautifully done <clears throat> so um so that is, you know, I currently just have the Tyrrell in pieces. It's mm -hmm. just been pulled apart actually this last month because it it's getting a birthday. And um, um, I just was last week up at the shop uh, looking at the tub, which is just now just a tub. Yeah. And all the rivet work is exposed and everything. And, you know, the fact that you can take it and just mm. easily lift it, just, just, just so lightweight. But like you say, those and and Mark Banner, who did the tub, does those purple rivets. Yes, have a very very distinctive look. Yeah, um, and it is a work of art, and and those things are you know everyone has their opinion of what art is, but to me those are are works of art. Yeah. You know? They look better than they are safe, of course, but you know um, that's just part of the uh, that's just part of the uh, deal you uh, rationalize when you race old old cars. So. Um, 
Uh, let me ask you a few sort of uh, cheesy, snappy questions uh, about the uh, sport. So your favorite vintage historic race event? I mean, I think I have to give the cheesy answer and say Monaco, right? I've done yeah. it five times. Um, it is a special track, you know, going back to when I was talking about being 16 and, you know, talking about these places, it was a completely unbelievable and unaccessible fairyland dream that you would ever do something like that. You know, that was just, yeah. just, just, yeah, you may as well be talking about walking around on Pluto or something like that. Um, it's very special uh, for sure. I mean, I, you know, I've, over the years I went to Silverstone many times, but Silverstone changed so many times that you're never really, and, and it's so featureless anyway. Whereas right. Monaco is the same way it was in the 20s and 30s with a few little add-ons, you know. And I mean, the remarkable thing about it for me was um, not only was it, you know, the iconic location, but once you actually got on track, you know, there's tracks that um, you find just don't work very well. They just don't have any kind of rhythm. And yet, you know, somebody cobbled out, just decided, you know, put up, put up barriers somewhere in 1923 or whenever it started, and put up barriers here and there, and said, okay, this is the this is the course we'll take, and it it has fantastic flow and rhythm to it, um, you know, surprisingly so. It's um, uh, it's kind of interesting. I I I did it three times. And the first time was limited because practice was entirely washed out. Yeah, and the set and the race lasted um, two laps before uh, my front wheel fell off. Um, so I did make the uh, highlight uh, reel. Um, so the first event was not very um, good, but I went back, and as you say, some tracks just speak to you in terms of flow, um, yeah. or they just speak to you. And I remember in qualifying the second time I was there I came around the swimming pool and there's the big timing screen in front of you mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I, I look up at the timing screen and I'm, I'm second you know yeah. and I thought and I, I, li I vividly remember thinking to me oh god there's been some sort of crash you know? <laughs> so the, and I'm going around no that's not right <laughs> and I, it's a track that if it clicks with you yeah. Um, it clicks with you and it did with me and the third time I was there I was lucky to win so um, I, I love it I mean I, I agree with it so uh, I mean a, a win at Monaco is something you can you can brag about all day long for the rest um, of your life there's no question so, about that so of your um, of your collection if you're if you have to if you can only have one yeah it's uh, it's going to very clearly be the Tyrrell Material right. 007 Formula One car, um, and and I've now had the privilege and opportunity of actually driving a lot of 70s cars, you know, between friends and yeah. and big shakedowns for other customers, you know, in the shop and all this kind of stuff, um, and you know, even though the Shadow was a more sort of iconic looking car, and um, you know, my particular Shadow had fantastic history, which my Material doesn't have. The same, yeah. you know, history or provenance. Um, the Tyrrell is just as a driver's car, just is get in and drive, and it will do what you say. It doesn't yeah. have, it doesn't have its own agenda like so many of those cars have. Yeah. Um, it just says, "I've got a DFV, and you can use it." 
yeah. and there's 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 no better motor in my in my you know humble opinion. Um, and if you can get that motor uh, in the right band and apply that to the track, apply that rubber to the track, you are motoring. You are really having fun. And then, you know, um, it's it's probably not as well balanced in terms of things like my, I have a Formula B car, um, a Chevron B15 that has, you know, what I consider the right amount of grips, brakes, yeah. and power mm -hmm. to make it just exceptional fun that you can just yeah. throw around. Um, you know, the Formula Ford is underpowered, no question, yeah. It's got, yeah. you know, reasonable grip and, and, uh, um, breaks and things like that but it just doesn't have the power um yeah. so so you know the Tyrrell was probably overpowered right if you think about it but sure. yeah um no race car driver ever complained of excess horsepower. no no and well, it is just it is just phenomenal what it'll do you know i used to um i was privileged to have a mclaren m1b um for mm -hmm. a while, which was a great car wonderful <laughs> car and um, when i first had it it was not well set up and um you know I, I like you i have formula b car bt35 brabham which is just so user friendly you know you get in and drive it in it but i remember with the mclaren um the guy who was uh, helping me set it up said to me i was struggling to explain to him what was wrong with it and he said well does it do what you ask it to do and i said well it does but then it does two other things that I did not ask it to do. <laughs> yeah. And he goes, okay, I think I understand what's wrong. <laughs> so, um, so do you have um, a bucket list um, either for an event or a car? Well, I mean, the, the car bucket list is endless. You know, let's not even, let's not even, uh, let's not even open that box. Um, oh, of course. Yeah, I look. I'd, I'd love to replace the Shadow and have another car, you know, in in Europe, another F one car in Europe that I could I could regularly use. But my circumstances have changed. You know, four years ago there was a a Sentinel event with my son arriving, and um, and, and so life's a bit different. And, and I'm yeah. not I'm not you know jetting off to Europe uh, for a weekend to do a race anymore. It's yeah, more, yeah, yeah. It's more of a controlled yeah uh, uh, situation. So. Um, you know, I think that um, I, I'm constantly, you know, invited to to drive other cars and things, which is fantastic. Um, but like I said, over the years, what I've realized is that if I'm going to use my limited resources, time and money, um, I'm probably going to want to focus it on doing, you know, some kind of an event, the, the type which I know drives me you know uh, and 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 really makes me happy which is going to be something in a single seater probably yeah. You know? yeah and you know this there's so many opportunities right you can you can be a driver in an enduro now the, the masters legends group has these you know yeah. uh, longer races with multi-driver changes and everything and yeah i i'm sure i would love to do it but there's just not the amount of time and energy to do everything and so if i'm going to focus it it's going to be on what i know i love a lot and um yeah the bucket list i think i want to do long beach in an f1 car right um, and that that opportunity is going to come come up is actually it actually is happening this year 
my Tyrrell's in pieces, so that's not going to work. But you know, in a, in another year, yeah. um, and then um, you know, places I haven't been. Um, you know, I want to go to Coda. I haven't done Coda in oh, that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. One, it's one, but otherwise in the U.S., not a lot. Um, yeah. And in Europe, I've you know, I think I've done I've done most of the big tracks, and probably I just I just love to repeat them. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. You're um, just in the last minute um, that we have or so. Um, you're a '70s guy, um, you know, in terms of cars, etc you've you've not really um gone back to the 50s and goodwood and um, too much um well so i have you know I, I i've done a lot of formula junior so that's now we're talking yeah. 60s and i actually do have a i actually do have a 50s car that is pretty much unique and it's so unique that even if i try and sell it i don't think i'll ever find a find a buyer it's a formula sort of a formula 500 type car so like like a Cooper, but it's it's an Australian car, a one-off called a Ty Vincent. It's got a Vincent twin motor in the back. Um, you know, sort of exotic and special. Um, and it was a you know hill climb winner in the day, but it's yeah. it's unique and and it you know it takes three people to get it started. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> and and you drive, you know, and I've only driven it around a few times, and you know, it's it's neither safe um but it's cool i mean it's an exceptionally cool car it's the kind of car you know maybe hanging from from the ceiling in your garage would yeah, be exactly would be really cool and and the pictures look fantastic but yeah that's as far back in the 50s as i've gone i've driven i've driven some 50s cars on the track you know like like an xk120 like your xk120 and i i can't i can tell you i didn't like that experience very much yeah but it was you know I, I wouldn't i wouldn't say no to it it's just if i'm going to choose what i want to drive it's going to be something more 70s probably single seater in the 70s yeah you know? all right well nick so thank you so much for uh, joining us on surgeon's life today it's been a fascinating talk i could talk for hours as you know both of us could talk for yeah, hours. yeah well we'll have to do we'll have to do that over a beer sometime in florida or if you come out to san francisco that's exactly right um all righty. Well, thanks so much. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Thank you so much.